And it's good to be here, and although I live on the other side of the country, I do remain prayerfully concerned for the work that goes on here, and especially the new church that you're planning to put up. So it's good to be back and to catch up with the news that you now have planning permission, and that's wonderful. I'm using this this morning, but back in my own church, I normally get somebody else to follow me. I want to begin with a story. A disheveled beggar parked himself outside the door of a very fashionable church. He was a pathetic-looking figure. His hair was all knotted and greasy. His clothes were ragged and worn, and he was extremely smelly. It was a fashionable church, and as people came to church that morning, the first person who saw him was just so disgusted he turned his back on him and walked straight into the church. The second man who saw him uh, put his finger on his nose as if to say the smell is terrible and he strode very pompously into the church. The third person actually spoke to the tramp and said, what are you doing outside this church? Take your smelly carcass somewhere else. And not a single person spoke to the man apart from that one word Nobody showed him any compassion, and nobody sought to help him. They all went into the church that morning, and as the service was about to begin, the beggar, the uh, tramp, came into the church. And he walked right to the front, and he plonked himself on a seat on the front row. And if looks could have killed that morning, that poor man wouldn't have stood a chance. Everybody was saying, in effect, how dare he come into this service? How dare he sit there? And how can we concentrate with the awful smell coming from his body? And then, to everybody's amazement, the tramp walked to the front and stood at the pulpit. He pulled off his wig, he pulled off his beard, took off his ragged coat, and to everybody's shock, it was their own pastor. Imagine the embarrassment that they had scorned and rejected their own pastor. And the pastor then went on to read a passage. And the key in the passage was, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. And you remember that Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. And the disciples said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty? And give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did to the least of one of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. So when we see a tramp or somebody on the edges of society, how do we see them? I used to do missions in our local prison. And I always took with me a group of 12 men. And I tried to encourage them not to look at men and say, to themselves, I reckon you're a child molester or a drug user or a murderer, but to look at every man to say, here is somebody made in the image of God who can be transformed by the love of Christ, who can be filled with God's spirit and who can become useful in God's service. It's the only way to look at people on the edges of society today because if not, we can be very very easily making religion more important than people, which is the title of our talk this morning. 
And of course it reminds us of a story just a few pages back in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember there were two people who saw the man lying supposedly dead in the road. The first was a priest, a very religious man. He saw the man but realized if he touched what he thought would be his dead body, he would be ceremoniously unclean. He wouldn't be able to perform in the temple. And so he passed by and left the man alone. He put the ceremonial law, his own religious scruples, before the need of that man. The next man was also very religious, the Levite. But he may have thought, I must put my own safety before the needs of that man. Because very often the ploy was, a man would lie dead in the, looking to be dead in the road. He'd be a kind of decoy, because robbers would be hiding in the rocks. And as soon as somebody went to attend to him, they would pounce on him and rob him. So maybe he put his own personal safety before the needs of that man. And you know, it's very easy for us to do something similar, to see somebody in need and to put our own religious scruples first. In our village, a boy went blind when he was only about 23. His name was Morris. He became very bitter and very twisted because he was a lover of creation and not to be able to see what God has created, and he loved birds. And I used to see him in our village, walking with his stick, looking a picture of absolute misery. And you know, I used to drive past him day after day. I had a meeting to take. I had a committee to chair. I had somebody to visit. And one day God rebuked me and said, you're no better than the priest and the Levite. You're putting all these other things before the needs, need of this particular person. And one day I decided to go for a walk knowing I would meet him. And uh, he knew I was a Christian, and when he met me, he said, don't you dare talk to me about God. And he said, I don't want you converting me. And of course I told him that wasn't my job, and I couldn't do it anyway. That was God's work. But eventually Morris became a Christian in our own home, and I had the privilege of baptizing him in the sea at Sizewall. But you know, for some time, I went past Morris, and he really needed somebody to talk to him and to care for him and to support him. And maybe even as I'm speaking, and it's very challenging, God's reminding you of somebody that maybe you have been ignoring, going past when God would have you put them first. And, you know, it's possible for us even on a Sunday morning and we're coming to church and yet somebody down the road needs our help. Maybe their son's in prison and they don't have transport. Would we take their parents to prison to visit him or would we put coming to church first? And so the title of our talk this morning, and I don't normally use this, we'll see how it goes, it's People or Religion. And it's really a very challenging topic. And there are three people in the drama as it unfolds. There is a crippled woman, and there is a religious ruler, and in the middle of it all, there is our own powerful savior. And so we've relived the story of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite. You see, I've left it all behind. The unknown crippled woman. And we're told she'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And the woman's deformity according to Professor Rendell Short, was spondylitis deformis. 
And it was a kind of illness where the spine would uh, become compressed, the vertebrae, and uh, it would cause a person to stoop. And it seems this dear lady had been bent and twisted for 18 years. And that must have been a terrible condition to be in because she lived at a time where there were no spinal units for her to visit and find relief. There was no opportunity for her to see a physiotherapist to get some relief, probably no pain-killing drugs to take. So her condition would be a very difficult one indeed. And according to Jesus, and he used the term, she had been like this for 18 long years. I don't know if you've ever met anybody with this kind of condition. But I had a very dear friend who was very athletic when he was in his late teens and in his early 20s. And he got this same condition. And he was bent double. And he could never lie in a bed at night. He spent his life in a wheelchair and he slept in a chair at night. And my heart ached as I saw him deteriorate. And this dear woman had this awful illness. And it seems that she had been crippled, it says, by a spirit. And Jesus used the term that she'd been bound for 18 long years. And when we come to think about her suffering, there's an interesting phrase used here, which says, this woman whom Satan has bound these 18 long years. And if you look at the whole chapter, the first part, the theme is suffering. To begin with, there's suffering caused by human beings. And uh, the suffering in the first part of the chapter is where Pilate, uh, he kills a number of people. And then some people build a tower, and that tower falls on the, pe on the people and kills a number of people. So it's suffering caused by human beings. And then as you go a little further, you see, in some senses, God is responsible for suffering because uh, there's the case of the fig tree that Jesus cursed. And it was a picture of the Israel, Israel nation that were obviously often disobedient and rebellious. And it was a picture of how God punished them throughout their history. And then you get this picture of Satan inflicting suffering. And it's unusual for us to be thinking of the enemy, the devil, actually doing this. And so the problem of suffering is something that we're constantly being challenged about as Christians. So I want to digress just for a moment and think about it. A lot of suffering is self-inflicted. If a person smokes a lot, they will rot their lungs. If a person drinks a lot, they will destroy their liver. If a person takes drugs constantly, they will destroy their bodies. If we play the fool now, we will pay the bill later. We inflict a lot of suffering on ourselves. And according to C.S. Lewis, four-fifths of the world's suffering is self-inflicted, which is quite amazing. And so we can't blame God for that, though many people would like to. And then, of course, there's suffering inflicted by others, and war is an obvious example. And the innocent people who are suffering in Syria at the moment is absolutely heartbreaking. Over 200 Christians have already been killed and are being targeted by Muslim extremists. 
And of course, there are other things in our history, like the Aberfan disaster. And I remember I was at Bible college at the time, and everybody was talking about this. You know, how could God allow that? But of course, the men built the tip that then fell on the school and killed so many children. And of course, the thalidomide drug that wasn't properly tested that came on the market and many children were born deformed. But there's a sense in which we all cause suffering in the world. The things we say, the things we do, we inflict pain on other people. And sometimes people would love God to come down and sort out all the suffering in the world. But they don't realize he'd have to begin with you and he'd have to begin with me because we're all part of the problem. And then there's suffering that's inflicted by Satan that Jesus says here quite clearly, this woman whom Satan has kept bound these 18 years. And of course, Job was another example. He was stripped of his wealth and his health and his family. And then Paul, who had what he called a thorn in his flesh, he described that as a messenger of Satan. And so there's other forms of suffering And many of the forms of suffering remain a mystery. And there are people who are born blind and deaf and handicapped. And there are things that happen and we don't have any obvious answer. And we have to say to people, we don't know why this has happened, but we believe God knows why it has happened. And we have to learn to trust him. And maybe someday he may choose to give us an explanation. So here with this poor woman who was crippled with this particular illness. And then we come to our powerful and compassionate Savior. And it says in the beginning of the passage, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Did you know this was the last time that Jesus preached in one of their synagogues? He's on his way to Jerusalem. We don't hear of him preaching in a synagogue again. It was the last time that they would hear him. And you know, over the years when I've been preaching, there have been occasions where people have been in the audience and it's been the last time that they've heard a Christian message. And I've heard a few days later that maybe a person has died or they've been killed in a car accident. And that's why the Bible says again and again, today if you can hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. None of us know when we will be sitting under the influence of God's word and the ministry of his spirit and hearing God's word for the last time. So this was the last time that Jesus was in one of their synagogues. And it was obvious the authorities were watching him. By this time, they were out to get Jesus. And would he step on any of their cherished religious conditions? You know, there's a parallel passage in Mark chapter 2. And it's a very powerful passage again because there's another person there who's handicapped. It's a man with a withered hand. And uh, Jesus is in the synagogue and he calls the man forward and he heals the man. But he turns on the congregation in the synagogue and he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But everybody in the synagogue congregation remained silent. And then there's a remarkable statement. It says, Jesus looked round at them with anger. 
What an incredible place for Jesus to be angry. He was angry because of the hypocrisy of those religious people. They would rather keep to their Sabbath rules and regulations than see that man healed and restored and able to earn his living again. So Jesus was angry and he was distressed. And now Jesus is in another synagogue and he's facing a similar situation. Would he dare to step on their toes and heal this woman? And it would seem that the woman had entered the synagogue while Jesus was teaching, and she would take her place apart from the men with the women, probably at the back, because in that culture, anybody with a handicap was a kind of shame on the family. And even today in Jerusalem, I know of people who've rejected their children because they've been born handicapped and they're being cared for in homes. And so this woman probably was ostracized. But Jesus, in his love and his compassion, saw her. And Jesus spoke to her. And he uttered the most wonderful words that woman could possibly have heard. Woman, you are released from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. There's only one word for that, power. God's power coming through Jesus, healing and restoring a broken woman. But I think here you have a beautiful picture of the humanity and the deity of Jesus, his wonderful compassion and his power going hand in hand. And you see it when he's on the lake. In his humanity, he is so tired, he's asleep in a little boat on a stormy sea. And then he stands up and he rebukes the storm. What power. And you see the balance again at the grave of Lazarus, where in his compassion he weeps with those whose hearts are aching. And then with a loud voice he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. What power. The Son of God and the Son of Man clearly seen. But then we come to this angry and hypocritical synagogue ruler. And of course the synagogue ruler was a very important person in the synagogue. He oversaw a board of elders and they were responsible for the good running of the synagogue. What rabbis were invited to preach? The order of the services and the yeshivas, the schools, they were linked as well with the uh, synagogue. And so he was a very important and esteemed person in the community. But he became indignant Oh, I seem to have lost myself. Why was Jesus so angry with this man? And why was the synagogue ruler so angry? Well, there could be two reasons. First of all, he was the responsible man for everything that happened in the synagogue. But here is Jesus doing something without his permission. And maybe he felt bypassed. Well... Jesus was angry with him. The synagogue ruler, we know, was indignant. But the reason he was angry was because Jesus had desecrated the Sabbath. And the Jewish people had no less than 39 regulations of what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one was healing. And Jesus had healed this woman 
on the Sabbath. And this man was indignant. And Jesus said, if you had an ox and the ox was thirsty, would you not lead that ox out for a drink on the Sabbath? And of course they would. And so Jesus is turning it round and saying, but here is this woman with this awful affliction. Isn't it right that I should heal her on the Sabbath? He completely exposed their hypocrisy. But they were more concerned to keep to their religious rules and regulations than they were to see this woman healed of her infirmity. So Jesus was indignant. And he said, you hypocrites. He turned on them. And he said, you, synagogue ruler, and all those with you, how can you be so hypocritical? How can you be so hard-hearted? How can you put all your rules and regulations before showing compassion and concern for this woman? And you know, it's very easy for us to do the same and put our church traditions first before the needs of people. And I'll give some illustrations of that in a moment. And so Jesus healed her. And this man was indignant. But the interesting thing is, he didn't face Jesus with his anger. He turned on the people. And he said, there are six days in the week when you can bring your sick to be healed, but don't do it on the Sabbath. So he was really wanting to discredit Jesus, but he didn't face Jesus. It's what we call misdirected anger. I mean, a child can have a bad day at school and then come home from school angry and take out the anger on mum or dad. Or a man can have a bad day at work and instead of dealing with the issue that caused him to be angry at work because of a lack of moral courage, he comes home like a bear with a sore head and takes it out on his wife. Misdirected anger. And that's what's happening here. He turned to the people and he said, there are six days when you can bring people to be healed, but not on the Sabbath. And healing was work as far as they were concerned. So it is possible to put religious rules and regulations, religious scruples before the needs of people. I'll give you one or two examples of how religion can take over I think uh, of the early days when I was out with a marquee and working in Newmarket and working with two or three churches. And we saw a few people come to faith. And uh, I introduced them to a local church. And there were two women amongst them. And they didn't know the rules and regulations of this particular church, which was very insistent that the women wore head covering. And these two ladies came in and sat down. And I shall never forget it as long as I live. One of the women in the congregation turned round and looked at these women very harshly and said, if you're coming in here, you've got to have your head covers. And then she turned back and sat in her seat. Instead of being thrilled and excited that there were two new Christians in the church, the rules and regulations that they had took priority. Then I think of another illustration when I was preaching in a church in Cambridge where a lot of students used to come. And when it came to the time of worship, there was a Welsh student there and he was so full of the joy of the Lord that he was standing there and he was worshipping. 
and he was lost in wonder, love, and praise. And there was me on the platform, and he was just down here. But everybody in the congregation turned and looked at him. And if you could read their faces, they were saying, we don't do that here. How dare you do that here? Another case of where religious prejudice and scruples and rules can take precedence. One of the Billy Graham team talking to ministers in Ipswich told a very moving story from his own family. He told the story of how he had a son who grew his hair like a hippie and had a ring in his nose and one in his ear. And he was outraged because he thought, here am I, a member of the Billy Graham team. This is spoiling my image as a Christian. I can't bear this. And so he said to his son, you get your hair cut and those rings out or you move out. And his son took him at his word and he moved out. He's never seen him since. And he went and joined the movies. And he told that story to ministers and urged them not to major on minors, but to give their teenage kids some space to grow up and to grow through things. But you see, he was putting his own religious position, his own religious prestige, as he thought, before the needs of his son who was showing stages of rebellion. And so we can all work this through and think of it from our own particular experience. So these people were kinder to animals than people. They put their religious laws before the deep needs of this woman. All the opponents were humiliated, but all the people were delighted with the wonderful things he was doing. That was amazing, isn't it? Those people went out with their tails between their legs. They were utterly humiliated. Jesus completely exposed their hypocrisy. But the others could see who Jesus was doing and what he had done. And so the people were divided because of him. And that's a phrase that comes again and again in the Gospels. There was a division because of Jesus. And very often that's how it is in church. There are people who are totally committed to Jesus and there are those who are against him. And I hope this morning you're one of those who are committed to Jesus and who will have a heart of compassion for other people. I've got another slide that doesn't seem to be coming up, but maybe it will. It's the last slide I want to come up, but if it doesn't, I will read it to you. It froze on my computer, and it looks as though it's frozen again. Okay, I'll read it to you. Two very challenging verses to close with. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And another powerful passage from James. And uh, he really hits the nail on the head. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so we have to ask ourselves two questions. Are we strong on religion, but weak on caring for people? Is there somebody we're passing by that we ought to be caring for? Let's pray together.
Father, as we search our hearts and think about our own attitudes, we pray that you will help us to learn the lessons that this passage teaches us today. We know how easy it is to write people off. But we thank you that the people you, we write off, you take on and change and transform. And so, Lord, we pray that we won't become the kind of church that marginalize people, but that we will welcome all those who come, even if they don't understand our own principles, even our own rules that we tend to put down. Lord, give us big hearts, help us to be accepting, and help us to realize that every person that we meet has been made in your image and can be transformed by the love of Jesus. We praise you for the power of Jesus that we've seen this morning, and we pray that we may see more of his power at work in the lives of others who are broken and bruised in our societies today. We ask it all for the glory of your name. Amen. 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 You can see I don't often use this.